Hi there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode here on the DCVC podcast. This is your host, Akash Bhatt, and each week I bring you leading investors and operators investing and building companies all over the world. This is the very first time that we're having a repeat guest from the same fund. Joining me on the episode today is Rohit Sood. He is a partner at Bertelsmann India Investments, an investment firm that invests in companies in the digital education, media, and services sectors across early stage and growth stage. Rohit was a founding team member at Bertelsmann, having been part of the firm from day zero and has seen the growth of the fund over the last decade as well as played an instrumental role in shaping India's startup ecosystem. Prior to Bertelsmann, he spent some time at Dorsha Bank and holds an MBA from IIM Kodikot and bachelor's from IIT Delhi. Over the course of my conversation with him, we had a chance to sit down and reflect back on his journey, looking into some of the investments that he's made, the learnings that he's had both from failures and successes investing in India, and most importantly, what he's understood about the Indian startup ecosystem, having been both an operating partner of the fund as well as playing a larger role in supporting multiple stakeholders across the ecosystem. This is one of my favorite episodes for multiple reasons, and I'm extremely thrilled to share it with you all. So without further ado, let's head in and listen to my conversation with Rohit. Rohit, welcome to the DCVC podcast. Absolute pleasure to host you here today. You are the second person from uh, Bertelsmann that I'm having on the on the show. And I was talking to Mandi before the recording and saying that I don't typically have two people from the same fund coming on. And this is the first time that's happened. So I'm really excited and looking forward to speaking with you. And on that note, welcome to the show. Well, that's great to hear. Thanks for having me here, Tash. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. In fact, I was, uh, I did listen to, you know, Pankaj podcast uh, beforehand. And it's interesting, you know, that uh, we are having this conversation now. Uh, with whatever the status of the market is. And when you spoke with Pankaj, I think it was just the onset of COVID. So very interesting yeah. times to speak to. We missed the whole interesting period in the middle. That is so true. I mean, there was a different era altogether. It feels like when I spoke to Pankaj and there's so much that's happened over the last two years that it it probably will be two different theses, two different perspectives, two different views on what not just the market is, but also just the worldview, both from a macro and micro standpoint. We'll get into all of that over the course of our conversation, but more often than not, I typically start these conversations trying to understand how people eventually end up in their jobs. And I'm going to do a pretty similar question to you as well, where, yeah. of course, when somebody goes onto um, the Bertelsmann page or you go to LinkedIn, you kind of like get a sense of how things start, but the motivations to actually get into venture are very different. Today's times... Yeah. It's become very sexy to be in venture capital. But back when you started 11 and a half years ago, there was very little in the world of venture. People probably didn't even know what venture capital was. There were very few funds that were operating in and around that time. So let's take you back memory lane. Let's walk down that and understand what kind of got you excited and how did Bertelsmann happen to you? Absolutely. Uh, no, you're right. You know, uh, when I started this journey, you know, 11, 12 years back, Venture capital was not a term that most people were familiar with. But unfortunately, you know, my uh, journey and answer is actually different to most people and boring in that way. I think it's most it's most of a it's more of a straight line. So I'll tell you what, you know, I graduated, you know, I did my engineering, graduated in 2006. 
and the biggest thing that happened to me you know which put me onto this trajectory i would say you know happened in that year that i actually joined a hedge fund straight out of college right and 2006 was actually a boom year uh, especially for the job market in general uh, in the country we had you know in my campus placement we had who's who who had come to hire from all across the spectrum i ended up as i said in a hedge fund which was based in new york they were investing in distressed debt it was quite an exciting opportunity they had a 90% portfolio of debt 10% of equity i joined over there managed the debt book a little bit but spent a lot of time on the equity side you know following oil and gas sector and that was by the way my first trust you know with this world of investing and i thoroughly enjoyed it by the end of it i must say because when i started i didn't know and the eye of investing or the f of finance i learned everything the hard way and i think that was you know if i look back uh, that defines in a lot of ways how i think right now which is first principles so that was a great learning for the first two years thoroughly enjoyed it then figured out that maybe you know i need a more structured education around all of this did my mba and then what happened is you know during mba i don't know i had this crazy thought you know pop up in my head at some point that while i enjoyed investing in as my first uh, career move i thought that all the fun probably you know in the world of finance lies in trading you know i just thought all the books and all the movies are made about trading you know nobody's writing about investors uh so i actually joined the trading floor with deutsche bank realized early on that that was not my cup of tea and then you know that was the time when i was set actually you know to figure out a way to come back into the world of investing what is interesting and now we are talking about you know the time of 2010 2000 uh, you know around that period and then you know the flip cards and snappies that started to happen and while many people were not you know aware of what's happening in this world most of the founders actually you know were from my alma mater so i was still you know there was a lot of buzz around me a lot of my friends had joined flipkart and snapdeals and other companies around that time and i was thinking about this space and that is when you know i was also reaching out to people to come into investing and one thing led to another i you know serendipitously ran into pankaj in 2011 who had come in you know from new york that year to set up a fund over here one thing led to another and here we are i joined him you know right on the first day the beginning of the bodusen story here in that's a beautiful arc of a story right and there was one thing that you said there which is it was not my cup of tea trading was not my cup of tea yeah. and yeah. Uh, for the uninitiated i would love for you to actually shed some more light on the two pillars of finance or the multiple but in this context we're talking about to trading and investing mm-hmm. in um, uh venture capital as asset classes right how do you see both of your experience of course you spent a lot more time in investing in startups as opposed to trading but what in those early days of trading kind of like gave you a little bit of hint into like hey this is not something that i'm actually enjoying and how different was that from the world of investing into tech absolutely see there, there, there are some very big differences right so trading tends to be extremely quantitative for the most part see even in trading there are there are so many different things you know it it's hard to bucket all of that into one there are so many asset classes and within each of the asset classes there are so many different strategies and ways to play the market uh so it's a it's a so i'll keep the conversation at a 30000 foot level yeah so trading i would say you know or at least the part that i observed around me and within my job it's extremely quantitative and as much of a excel junkie that i am uh, i enjoyed that bit but it's sort of devoid of long term thinking it is sort of 
devoid of you know human interaction it is devoid of you know taking hard calls and there is a lot of you know at least as a junior position you know that there is not too much innovation that you are doing at the job at that point which was very different from my first interaction right which was my first job ever and you know the kind of uh, calls that i got to make over there so it was pretty clear to me you know that these two jobs are poles apart in fact there is another joke so my wife actually you know has been a trader for the longest part of her time you know a high frequency trader and her family joke always has been you know one stark difference between the two worlds is seen trading you see your pnl every day every second for that matter right you know by the end of the day whether it was a good day or a bad day right and i joke that you know in my career probably it will be 10 15 years before i know i was any good at it right so it can't be you know any different um whereas we all know what the venture capital side is right it is all about decision making in you know ambiguous information environment you don't have the full knowledge or information you're always trying to predict the future you are trying to you know make your judgment on the founders and so on so it, it falls apart i i think it's just the type of personality that i am it's the kind of things that i derive energy from i think it was very very clear that it's you know i'm more built for one than the other that's a very interesting view on how you can like define both these um asset classes right or more more, more so from the pillars of finance and uh moving the conversation along um i when i had pankaj on the show a couple of years ago i remember he was episode number 16 and uh during that conversation i asked him one question because he had spent a good part of his investing years looking at how the indian ecosystem has evolved no you talked about that yourself when you initially started your career in vc not a lot of people actually knew what venture capital was and there was the early days of how the ecosystem was evolving i would love to understand from your point of view because anybody who listens to your episode and his episode can actually contrast and understand how two people at the same fund have looked at the evolution of the indian ecosystem from two different point of views so i'd love for you to like share a little bit of your experience thoughts insights into how you have seen india evolve in the last decade or so more so from the time that you've started investing in the country yeah see india has evolved so much on so many dimensions you know especially if we talk about you know the tech uh, ecosystem over the last 10 years in fact that that's nearly 80 to 90% of the vintage right of the tech ecosystem if we talk about the last decade now pankaj and i are complementary in that sense that you know he is great at top down views and you know my style has always been you know more bottoms up so i have built most of my views through observing companies as they have been built grow and sometimes not succeed so most of my thinking is shaped by that um and i you know have been fascinated by by a few things that have happened over time see talent is of course one of the most uh tangible things that has changed over time right every 3 4 years not only do you see the quality the vision of founders you know change you know by a step function you also see if you look at it you know the most important layer of talent in any startup is you know the level 1 level 2 right down to the bottom right and i remember conversations back in 2012 2013 if you were to speak to any head hunter to hire a product guy in india you know what all of them would tell you that here are these 200 guys who work at yahoo i don't even know if people remember all of this right and you could only hire from that like that was the pool or try convince somebody you know from the valley to make a shift back to india right it was an amazing time right and then you know people developed in companies like flipkart and you know zomato and so on and you had so much of talent pool over time 
uh, to choose from. So that is one arc that I've seen, you know, uh, develop tremendously over time. Second is the availability of capital, and we can all have our views on that. Uh, but especially again, when we started, there were a handful of funds, you know, early stage, growth stage, and so on and so forth. Uh, there is a lot of capital uh, available to founders right now, which is only good for the ecosystem. It's tremendous, right, for the country that we have so much of risk capital available to fund these great ideas. These two definitely come to mind. And third is, you know, smaller little things, you know, on how the relationships between founders and VCs have developed over time, which have just matured. And I think, you know, that's also, you know, moved in a good direction. I'm not obviously going into the fundamentals of the economy and the country, you know, the, all the internet users and data and devices and all of that. I think that's a story that everybody, you know, understands fairly well. So I think India has come along well in multiple things. But lastly, I think I should not underestimate is the is the whole policy making and reforms, right? I was just, you know, noticing it, uh, read an article recently in Economist, which was asking the question, you know, if if South Africa is a is a failed state. And the reason I make that statement, you know, bring that up is, see, I grew up in an environment in my formative early business year where I used to hear this term BRICS a lot. I don't know. I don't know if you if you recall that, you know, there was this term coined, you know, BRICS, the future, you know, the emerging markets, yeah. which was Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And, you know, if we look at relatively how India has performed, I think I think it's a it's a it's a proud moment uh, as an Indian to see how the country has evolved. And it's very important that it continue to do so. But I think it's been it's been tremendous how far we have come in the last decade. Yeah. And you bring up some very interesting points, especially from a macro point of view as well, talking about the BRIC. Um, BRICS countries we just had news come out like today or yesterday, if I'm not wrong, where you had 20 new countries who wanted to be part of that um, that conglomerate, right? And there's yeah. there's the need because the playbooks that have been written by these countries are now becoming aspirational for other countries who want to follow a similar path. And especially with the startup ecosystem that India has kind of like shown the world, the formula of success by trial and error in some cases, but a lot of effort that's gone in um, by people, stakeholders, government to actually advance that is, is is something that other countries now want to emulate themselves. So that's one of the things that was also top of agenda for um, in that article that I ended up reading. I'm not sure where I read it, but a couple of days ago today that I ended up uh, having a quick skim. But going back to the earlier point that you made there, you talked about your experience with investing in companies that have been both successful as well as ones who have fallen by the wayside and i want to delve a little bit more deeper into both those conversations right let's talk about the ones that have perhaps not been as successful first and then we'll get into the success stories a little later but in terms of the ones that have fallen by the wayside what has been your learnings because there are a number of reasons why obviously companies don't do well uh, in spite of some having fantastic launch pads um, there are things that that could go wrong along the way. There's never a playbook for success that one can, you know, write, especially when building companies. You can go wrong in the early stages, you can go wrong in the later stages. There's never uh, a linear path for any company and there's nothing that anybody can actually say, hey, I'm going to follow the same playbook written by somebody. There are things that can be copied at certain stages with your own flavor that's kind of like brought into the picture. So having set that as the context, I would love for you to share a little bit more in terms of some of the learnings you've had in terms of looking at the companies within the portfolio, larger ones that you've been able to like also observe perhaps closely and share a little bit about what are those things that have kind of like defined the ones that have unfortunately not 
taken off the way that we all expected them to. See, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, we had very few examples of companies, you know, that have that have not worked, and that's partly by design. You know, we are an early growth fund, so we have done twenty odd investments in the country so far. I would say probably three have gone down the path uh, where there was not a successful outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and within that, see the learnings are mostly common, right? I, I I would say you learn probably as a VC, learn more from successes. And I can, you know, double click on that because, you know, in a, in a job, interesting, the whole job is to buy risk, right? Yeah. And I think as a, as a venture capitalist, it is very important to actually also dwell on the question on what can go right. Right. And have a certain, uh, how do I say, ability to take certain risks that sometimes others may not be willing to take. And I believe that only comes when you see successes in some of those areas, right? When you have the belief that this could work as the company, you know, progresses. Yeah. Failures, definitely, you know, you, there is a lot of learning from there. But I would say learning is more on personal side, how to manage things, how to do the right thing. You know, you grow as a, as a human being and so on. But, you know, knowing, I, I'm not a big believer of knowing, you know, one more way of how it won't work really leads to success. So I, I'm not a big believer in that. I think there is a lot of personal growth and failure that happens. But from a business perspective, there is more to learn from success. I also believe that as a venture capitalist, you know, that I, you make your returns on the winners, but I think you make your reputation on the losers. Yeah. So wherever, you know, the companies have struggled. And by the way, I only mentioned, you know, three examples where companies have not done well. We definitely have had a lot more examples where companies stuttered and needed help, needed help with capital financing in the middle uh, interim rounds and so on. And we have been there, you know, provided that support. When the companies are not working or, you know, cannot come out of it completely, I think it all boils down to, first of all, you know, doing the right thing by all the stakeholders, you know, finding the right home for the company. And whenever we have introspected on, in general, about learnings, and this is to my earlier point, you know, it's, we put everything in the same bucket, things that have worked, not worked, because even in the examples of companies which have been great successes for us, there are things that we have learned were not the right things to do, right? Just because it's a great success didn't mean that every move was right, right? And if you were deeply involved with the company and the founders, as we typically are, there's a lot of learnings of do's and don'ts in all kinds of examples, right? So within the ones that don't work, I think mostly it has been because of you know, over-competitiveness of the market that has definitely influenced us as venture capitalists, you know, the decisions that we have made over there. Uh, there have been certain nitty-gritty, you know, uh, learnings, mostly as an investor, to be honest. But I don't think there was anything in those markets, you know, that a founder could have done too much about. Um, or, you know, there was any stone left unturned, you know, to change the circumstance in that moment. So let's take this one step further because I think you mentioned that a lot of the learnings have come from the successes, which we'll obviously get into in, in just a bit of time. But we, we, when we talk about failures, we often talk about how things are typically not within VC's hands, which is all the variables that are on the company side, the company building side, the hiring strategy, the way the leadership uh, builds both internal culture as well as how they go about with their day-to-day uh, operations and growth of the company. When you're sitting on the other side of the table, and when you're able to like take this introspective lens on three or some of the other companies that have started along the way, how do you guys do postmortems? How have yeah. you looked at it and said, okay, there are certain things that we could have changed, the things that we could have looked at differently? Because yes, you made a very good point saying that the market have 
market has evolved along these um, periods of time, wherein there's not a lot perhaps the companies could have done. And I've been part of a startup like that, that unfortunately was amidst like 25 companies in the food delivery space. And it was a competitive market. Everybody was in there in the first two uh, figure out a business model first with capital eventually won. So I don't think that's a lot that the company was able to like do, but it was just the nature of the market. But from an investor's point of view, how do you look at it and say, hey, when we're doing a postmortem on a company that's perhaps not gone according to plan, how can we look at it and say, can we minimize this going forward? Absolutely. No, we do that actually a lot. And, you know, this is a general strategy session that we do if not every year, definitely, you know, every two years, you know, during the offsite, we will say, you know, we will calibrate all the learnings and see how to tweak our investing parts and post-mortem is one thing and as I said you know everything else put together see there are two ways to look at it number one is you know how would you recalibrate your investing strategy right how would you should you have still invested in the company if you had all the information as you had at that time plus this additional let's say wisdom that you have arrived to after the end of it right so it is whether you were entered or not the second part is, would you have guided the company differently, uh, you know, given the outcome that is actually, and those two are very, very different lenses, right? One affects your picking of the companies moving forward. The other is, you know, how you manage companies once you are in. See, most of our learnings, you know, have influenced the first part, to be honest, because as when it comes to the second, see, we are extremely deeply involved. Obviously, you know, our experiences as they enrich over time, we can add more value, we can bring more of the network to the play. But most of the learnings have been to number one point. So, for example, you know, in the first one or two years, we evolved our playbook multiple times over. The iteration cycles were much faster in the early period of our fund. Right. So, and that is deeply ingrained in our philosophy right now. So, for example, we are very clear that we are only interested in backing category leaders or category creators because creators end up being leaders, right? We don't like to enter competitive segments. Uh, this is this is a principled truth because there is a lot of money probably to be made, you know, in a number four, number five player in a large market. And as they move towards the path to becoming a number two player, that's not exciting for us as a fund, no matter how much IRR sits over there, right? So that's just a fund philosophy. And we are very, very clear about it. You will see that bias in most of our investments on what the competitive landscape is, you know, at the time of our investment. So these sort of learnings, we take a lot. The second big learning was, um, and it may sound obvious to a lot of people, but, you know, it was formative years for us. We figured that for the hockey stick to be, to, to, to become a reality, there is only one way that can happen. And that is through retention of revenues, right? And there's a whole spectrum that we can talk about about retention you know there is there is subscription the best form of retention and then there could be high repeats and you know there could be high AOVs and so on and so forth and we became extremely biased towards you know these were some of the learnings that we adapted you know our strategy towards and that actually became uh, very very important moving forward in fact i'll make a note which is related to this i think there's a lot of talk i don't know if if you are in this talk ever to ask me about anti portfolio I, I don't know that's a that's a very common question that we we get from people and see anti-portfolio is also a sort of, you know, taking stock of things, right? After they have happened, you know, to the, to exactly what we are discussing. And the point that I would like to bring is, see, I have a very different view on thinking of companies as anti-portfolio. See, we pride ourselves in the coverage of the market. So every large company, you know, out there is technically an anti-portfolio because 90% chances that we would have met them, right? But I don't think that's the right way to look at you know, this whole concept, I think the right way to look at it is 
knowing what you know now, would you have done that deal, you know, at the time that you had the opportunity to do so? Because only this question gives a true sense of whether there has been new learning, right? Because there is no point getting influenced by an outcome if you're still going to reject a similar company if that came across your table, right? And that is, I think, a better question to ask. That is a harder question to answer. And that leads to better action. And over there, then you can really distill down to, you know, very clear answers of how your thinking has evolved and what you would have done differently. So as you were speaking, I was making notes of like three different things here. So I have three follow-up questions. Yeah. One is a follow-up comment. Mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about anti-portfolio and you gave me this permission to like share my thoughts with you uh, yeah, at the beginning of the conversation. So the way I look at anti-portfolio personally is I think of every company that I or we haven't invested as an anti-portfolio. And I'll tell you why. Yeah. That's because had we had the opportunity to like have our sourcing done rightly, our thesis built correctly, and our focus, you know, being a little bit more concentrated, we might have bumped into those companies. Chances are yeah. we don't get that right at any fund, no matter if it's a first fund, second fund, your hundredth fund, there will be companies that you perhaps have not seen or have seen or something's kind of like gone wrong. So in my opinion, the way I look at anti-portfolio is every company that you haven't invested is an anti-portfolio company. So I just wanted to like share that thought with you. If I see, I, I know you're a very early stage investor, right? Seed stage investor. So in that case, you know, that would be true. The only thing I would say is, I think both of our worldviews is correct. Uh, maybe, you know, my, my answer to that anti-portfolio is very, uh, uh, valid for an early growth or a growth investor. See, because for us, we don't miss out things in sourcing because we come in mostly when companies yeah. are discovered. Right. And in that scenario, you know, we have always, nearly always have met the company. Right? Uh, I would definitely, you know, call it, so if there is a large outcome out there that we missed in sourcing, then I would definitely call it an anti-portfolio because then I can, you know, point it to ourselves that, you know, it was a miss on our part. That's fair enough. I think the stages really matter and early stages uh, is probably the caveat there is like early stages, definitely every company that you have an investor is in like an anti-portfolio. And you also mentioned something about um, given the information that you you have had, you would have probably guided your companies differently as well. And if I'm not wrong, I recall this one quote that's on the Bertelsmann's website where um, I think you talk about how you consider your founders as team members that you're partnered to create um, world-class businesses and you don't really yeah. look at them as you know um, limited opportunities for investments and you kind of like work alongside them to build successful companies and while we're talking about success failures and you having that opportunity to like hold somebody's hand and you know build companies as they go along I would love to understand how you do so because it's not easy to hold somebody's hand given that when you are meeting these companies and I say this with a with a very soft and uh, delicate um, uh, approach, right? Founders at the early stages are not as arrogant but post-PMF they get a little arrogant <laughs> saying, ha, ah, we've kind of figured something out. We're trying to like, we're seeing things kind of like fall into place. So there's that little bit of like ego that sort of starts developing in some founders as well. May not be in the forefront, but maybe on the on the, in the background. So how do you go about holding people's hands and help them build companies at especially your stage? 
Definitely. See, see, that's the that's central to everything, and that's what we enjoy the most. In fact, what we what we truly believe and says on our website, actually, we consider ourselves as extended, you know, teams for the founders, and that's how exactly we behave. See, to your to your second point, you know, while we are picking the founder, it's very important that we gel well, and part of gelling well is alignment in values. We must be able to foresee that we can work together, and that is extremely important to us. because we are not passive investors we are not nosy but we are not passive either we like to actually help as much as we can and if we see during our conversations of the investment you know if arrogance or any other thing you know trickles in you know most likely we will not go ahead because that is in fact that's one of the most frustrating things for the junior members of our team and everything is checking out and you know you you sort of you know move on from a company because you can't see yourself working together it's hard for others to understand but it's a very very important criteria for us so we try to avoid those cases coming to the first part see i think you know i have often wondered about it a lot because i have seen that for pankaj and for me it is easy to sort of create that rapport with the founders that we are in it together and most of the times we are able to create that environment even before we have closed the investment hmm. now i don't know you know i only have introspection around this point i think part of it is you know the backgrounds that pankaj and i come from i think we come from humble middle class backgrounds we understand the aspirations of the founders we can put ourselves in their shoes and we understand you know that everything can't be hunky dory all the time there would be problems and we are too interested and too keen to understand what the real problems are to keen to actually help the founders solve through them either you know if we have any answers or thoughts or suggestions or if we can bring something to the table through network and so on and i think that helps that just helps to get that relationship going where a founder understands that these guys are here not to ask questions but to build right and we often say this right i like pankaj and i you know we don't understand you know what's the point of asking a founder time and again you know that you missed your budget by 5% 10% etc see it come that thinking comes very naturally to us that for the founder the maximum stake on line is for that person right if the company is not going as per plan the most stressed person in this world will be the founders of the company right so there is no point in us piling on that pressure right the interesting thing and it's a natural inclination so my first question would never be that you said this revenue and this happened this my first reaction would be you know what is causing this you know let's go to the inputs what call did we take is the market not working did some call did not work what can we do differently you know and then just literally brainstorm about it so that's the you know that's how we get you know to the core of it and we are very proud that we i think across the board we have created long lasting relationships and that's how we see it we don't see these as business relations we see these you know at very strong partnerships journeys that we have been along like we have partnered them with the journey of their lifetime right and we totally understand that and respect that and that comes through in all our interactions with them that's a very interesting point that you bring up especially because i've heard you say this a couple of times now which is market right and let's talk about market because yeah. when we look at just india over the last 11 12 years the market has gone through a phenomenal change right we're not going to get into the numbers we're not going to get into the growth and any of that but when founders and vcs talk about the market changing what do they mean because when the founder talks about it 
it's a little different because they're probably talking about it at a micro level. And when VCs are talking about it, they're perhaps talking more from a macro level. And there is a little bit of that. There's the, 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 in some way in between is where they kind of like see where the micro marries the macro. So when you look at it, are you able to like look at it from a point of view of the founders as well? I'm sure the answer is yes, but I'd love to understand how you do so. And how are you able to like make them meet you in between and trying to like then decipher how do you break through? How do you find a breakthrough when the market is not reacting the way that you want it to react? Yeah, but that's a great question. See, I, I, I think it's always, it's always an honest discussion, you know, from multiple directions. As a growth investor, see, dissecting the market is very core to our, both our investing style as well as, you know, our portfolio management. And we always keep the founders honest as to what we believe the shape of the market is, right? And we have multiple approaches, you know, we are both top down, bottoms up, etc. And I don't think we have ever faced an issue where founder and us were standing poles apart, you know, post investment, in, you know, on how the market is reacting, right? And we as a fund are also extremely data driven. See, even if there are differences in view, there are always, you know, data that you can that you can put up there are proxies that you can look at there is research that you can do through other portfolio companies and generally in the market and i think it's it's not that hard to reconcile views on market and hence our philosophy always is you know that we can see for example you know what has happened in the last two three quarters i think sometime towards the end of 2022 there was a slowdown in consumer spending, right? The Diwali season, the festive season that we had over here was not as good as people expected. And then, you know, the consumer spends have been less than what people anticipated. Now, something like that is easy to corroborate if you were to look at it. We have multiple consumer companies. We have multiple logistics companies. You can see, you know, what's happening across the board. You have, you know, uh, public companies filing their earnings and quarterly reports. You can reconcile all of this information. So then you can go back to the company and you can always have that very data-driven discussion that, you know, we can attribute, you know, this much miss probably, you know, in our numbers, probably because the market is softened a little bit and nobody can predict the market. We ourselves do not try, you know, getting into that too much. The whole point is to get company into shape where we can continue to grow, you know, if the market, if the market turns. And hence, all the focus shift towards the inputs that we have for the business. What is happening, you know, to our spends, to our conversion funnels, to let's say our product, uh, you know, engagement and so on, to our retentions, to our repeat and renewals, to our sales cycles, right? Now, those are the things that you can actually influence, measure, and actually, you know, and that's going to lead to the outcome eventually, right? So we don't, a post-investment, we don't try to get into nitty-gritties of market unless Unless, you know, it's just, you know, the company is not taking off at all. And in that case, you know, that's a different conversation then. Because then it could be a matter of our assumptions being false or, you know, something else happening in the market that we thought, you know, it will go in this direction, but it's not happening at all. Now, that requires a different kind of introspection altogether. I'm going to ask a follow-up question, which can be a little bit more philosophical and scientific, right? Can you manipulate the market? Hmm. Define market in this, we are, we, are, we, are, we are talking about the market that the company is trying to address, right? Yes. See, see, the answer is sort of yes and no, right? I think there are plenty of examples where, you know, it also depends on the degree to which you can manipulate and for the time period that you can manipulate, right? Because the way I look at this manipulation is you're sort of 
faking it till you make it, right? right? So if you look at, let's say, and I would love to hear your perspective also in this and whether I'm going in the right direction. See, if you if you discount or subsidize something, right, you can probably in my books call it, in you know, for the purpose of this conversation, let's say manipulating the market a little bit because you are creating demand, a lot of demand that probably doesn't exist at a price point at which the company will be profitable, right? So that is sort of manipulating, right? But now then we come to the second order of this, right? Is there any meaning to it, right? Are we manipulating just so that we can get a higher and higher valuation and we are just playing that game? Or are we manipulating it, you know, in order to grease the wheels to get the flywheel moving, right? Because you need to do something sometimes, especially in marketplace and these kind of businesses, you need to get one side going, right? And that is where I think the lines become blurry. That is where I think sometimes, you know, people get caught in games that it's hard to get out of. But I think people try to, nobody would label it as manipulating, but I think it, it, it probably goes in that direction. But by and large, in the long term, I don't think markets can be manipulated. Big believer, markets always win. Um, I don't think if you are building a impactful business in a huge market, I don't think you as a single player will be able to manipulate it to any significant way in a short period of time. Right. Now, my, my what, thoughts, what, what do you think about it? Yeah, my thoughts on that are, um, I guess it comes down to the subjectivity of how one defines manipulation as well as market. And the way I look at it is I'll perhaps compare it to let's say the cannabis industry here in the US or maybe the crypto industry as well or gaming or betting or one of the four that you want to take. I look at regulation policy as some levers of market manipulation. Now it really comes down to how badly do the stakeholders want something to happen and not happen. Now crypto in India, there's been a massive you know, like push against widespread adoption, both at the central government level, as well as, you know, amongst even the retail investors to an extent. And for obvious reasons, for example, something like cannabis, which is, which even within the US market, when you think about it, did not widespread happen at the federal level, but happened state level. And then consequently, over the course of the last 20 years, we're still fighting here in some states for it to be legalized. And that will always be a struggle between how politics works and goes hand in hand with what happens with the market play, right? So there's, in my opinion, there's a little bit of like political spectrum that comes into being as well as how badly the stakeholders really want to like push that narrative and what does it really mean in the macro context? So in my opinion, it can be, but it really comes down to who's playing in power and what does yeah. it mean in terms of the outcome for the stakeholders and how much can this really uh, affect the macro trend. I really don't think market manipulation really comes down to finance or the outcome from a monetary point of view. Yeah. It's always from a power dynamic, in my opinion. That's how I look at it. No, that's a fair assessment. I think regulations have always been used as a tool, you know, by the by industry giants. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunately, you know, I, I keep reading about it, hearing about it, you know, politics is creeping into valley. Um, but see, in the large traditional businesses, you know, politics always play uh, a big role. Regulations, you know, tend to protect or help the incumbents many times. You know, that's one way to fend off, you know, new competition. I guess you're right in that sense, as you said, you know, it's, it's you know, how we define it. But yeah, one can look at it as a manipulation. Right. 
Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm glad that we, we touched upon this because it's, it doesn't come up that often over the course of my conversation. So I'm glad we were able to like touch upon this uh, question as well. But I want to bring back um, one particular quote that um, came up during this conversation with a VC on the show and who is also investing in um, this growth, early growth phase, right? That A, B, H to like about C. It's called the value of death. And uh, you're right. And um, there's there's this thesis that I think Pankaj also mentioned it um, or wrote it in a blog or something that I happened to like read somewhere on LinkedIn or one of the things that he may have put out. The value of death is notorious for spitting out people who, by people, I mean startups that are actually not built for um, the scale that comes beyond. And at the same time, it also in some way, shape or form molds entrepreneurs, makes them more gritty, resilient and builds leaders in the process, right? What side of the coin are you when you've looked at it from, because you operate in that value of death in some way, in some sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you see it? Well, this certainly is value of death. And by the way, you know, I I would go on to say it's value of death, you know, operating in this area, both both for startups as well as funds, right? And, and I, this is one of my favorite topics. I can go on and on about, you know, both the dimensions about it. But to the question that asked, you asked, I think that's more from a perspective of, companies coming out of this phase right yeah. uh, see i have a i have a thesis or a theory around it so first of all i do believe that this is a value of death I, I i don't think there is any doubt about that there are two three things you know that impact companies during this phase right number one is you know this is you know call it one to ten or whatever one to hundred kind of a journey and multiple things now are scaling in your org most importantly your culture uh, you know, your org design and everything and managing all of that. You know, you are now, your sales, everything is now going from a phase where the founders could have managed, you know, tightly through their control or, you know, just the top management. And this is the time when it needs to turn into an institution. So there are, you know, a lot of pitfalls that you and I can both imagine lie over here. So great teams then are required to come out of it. You need to have the right DNA, the right kind of soldiers over here to take you past these inflection points. So that is one. Number two, which we can touch upon later, generally in series E to C, there is less capital available because I do think that it's a value of death for uh, investors as well. And hence there is a there is a dip in the, in the pool of capital available in this. So you need, really need to pull through. Third thing, you know, that I will tell you is the most important reason in my view i have this hypothesis uh, is that the, the the color of money changes somewhere during this phase right so multiple things happen i'll i'll give you a quick maths around it and it will be it will be great to have your perspective right it's it's my observation in the market see what happens is when you are in a series a to c kind of a position you are still loss making which means that you are still trying to attract venture money and not stable private equity money now, by any means of account, any venture capitalist will see, let's say at the bare minimum, 5x, you know, on a non-dilutive basis on their first investment, right? So let's say you are the founder, you are raising your Series C and you come and pitch to somebody that I can, you know, probably put on paper an outcome which is worth a billion dollars, right? And let's say I, I buy that, right? I just say that everything that you have said is good. I'll just put some buffer of 20% to it. So you say billion, I say 800 million. 
and I need my 5x return at least on this. So I say, you know, I'll come in at a, at a, at a valuation, which is 800 by 560 million dollars, right? And now the point is, now you've attracted my money, let's say, and you do the deal at this point. Now, what is going to happen in the next round? There are only two, three scenarios that can play out over here, right? Either that 1 billion number moves on to 2, 3, 4, 5, right? And the only way that can happen is that everybody underestimated how deep the market is. The unfortunate problem is that the biggest and simplest successes that are around us usually fall in this category, which tends to influence all the founders. So if you look at Flipkart or a Zomato or a Swiggy or in our portfolio, Eruditus, etc., I can guarantee you no investor underwrote the kind of success, you know, that they went on to become, right? It's just that when the company came up for the next round and the next and the next, the numbers supported the fact that the market is probably deeper and deeper and now and here rather than much in the future, right? If that doesn't happen, then what you need to do, then you're left with two options. Then either you create new revenue streams and S-curves, have some proof of concept as we like to call it, right? Where you can show us that, you know, while billion is there, you, you know, it, it's possible to have much more than that, right? You create optionality on in your pitch, right? Hard to do, hard to do in between two rounds. As you would know, you only get 12 to 18 months before you reach your next fundraise stay. Hard to get all of that built in and convince people, right? Or the third is you turn profitable, which is, you know, sort of, uh, uh, not a sexy path for many to follow, especially in good bull markets, right? And this is why I think this value of death exists, right? Now, if you look in our example, so if if you pitch $1 billion, I would argue that once you reach 15, 16% of that valuation, you need to turn profitable to keep destiny in your hand or you are playing with fire, right? You are playing with things that are probably not in your control. And hence, you know, you will fail to attract subsequent money. And I think this all comes down into this period, you know, the series A to C somehow because of the kind of the level of exits that we have seen. So this is my thumb rule that I keep giving founders, right? Either turn profitable or, you know, uh, you increase the market size or, you know, don't ask for a high valuation. You're making the deal with the devil. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you there. Um, I think all those these three scenarios, in my opinion, with respect to whatever market you're in, bear market, bull market, the fundamental principles remain the same. Because you can like the, the most common argument that I've heard is hey, you know, you know, in a bull market, it's easy for you to go and raise money, get better valuations, and it's the best time for a, in, in a founder's life to actually do so for whatever reasons. And with you know, founders will exit with their secondaries, make some money and blah blah blah, and all of that stuff. But the point here being that irrespective of that. Once you, we always go through cycles, right? Bull bears are always going to be around. But when, when companies go back or when, when the market starts correcting itself or there's a, there's a bear market like the one that we're in right now kind of, kind of comes across, you will, you'll soon hit reality. And we're seeing that happen with a number of companies that are either struggling to turn profitable, struggling to increase market size and have forced to either go global in that case and haven't cracked the global playbook because India, mein hi, the opportunity was so large and yet you're unable to like go into like places and global is a bigger uh, beast to tackle. And as you mentioned, 12 to 16 or 18 months is not enough to crack, a, 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 let's say a tier three India, let alone, let's say a market in the world. Like if you, least of all, the United States, uh, which is typically where most companies will like look to because it's 
basically a composition of Europe put into like one country, right? In terms of spends, the market size and everything else. Um, so I, I, I think the thesis holds true irrespective of which market you're in. And I'm, I'm in complete agreement. And it's, it's unfortunately now that a lot more founders in India are learning about this. That's also, pure, See, I, yeah. Sorry, sorry, no, didn't mean to interrupt. This downturn, these cycles are extremely important, right? So I, I'll be very honest, since, since I started investing, this is one true beer cycle that I've seen. You know, there was something stutter happened in 2016, 17, but this is the first uh, beer cycle. And I've seen that markets can are a better teacher than all the VCs put together in a room, right? Okay. And this is important. And I think this is such a healthy thing to happen to companies. See, to my point, you know, try telling a founder, you know, in a in a market like 2020 or back in the day 2015, that, you know, if you think you are going to be a billion dollar company, try turning profitable once you cross a valuation of 150 million, right? You see where that conversation goes, right? Yeah. Uh, and you see where that conversation go with a lot of fellow investors or board members as well, right? And that's the case. But but when, you know, this, this kind of, uh, you know, environment happens, I think it just resets and companies need to be able to adapt both to great bull markets and peer markets. It needs to be, you know, that a great founder needs to know when to sprint and when to consolidate, right? And I think the best founders are learning that uh, through this cycle. And we are actually, I'm, I'm personally, cautiously very optimistic about a lot of businesses on how they are going to turn out and what we will have at the other end of it. Um, and in some shape or form, I believe that when we look back, uh, you know, two years down the line, when we look back at the last six years, it may have been the perfect recipe of success, you know, and what happened with COVID and, you know, the excess of liquidity and what happened after that, we may have some gems at our hands is my personal belief. Yeah. And I may have a little bit of a controversial opinion and I could be completely wrong the way I look at it as well. With what has happened in the last two cycles that you talk about, 15 and 2021, whichever year that you want to pick, where we've seen a lot of later stage growth investors come in over value companies and have given these massive valuations, a lot of people will say it's bad economics, bad for the founders, bad for the ecosystem, bad fundamentals through and through. But if you take, if you wanted to find a silver lining in that, and if you really wanted to just dig deep, you will probably also say like, hey, you know what? Who are the people who benefited from this? The founders and the VCs who had previously invested in the other rounds. Because no later stage growth investor resides in India. If you think about it, yeah. we don't have the likes of the capital that a SoftBank or a Tiger Global or a, to an extent Sequoia um, actually holds or let alone the other ones like the Tamasex and, and the larger uh, uh, private equity funds that are operating now at those later later edges of the market. So in a way that I also look at it and say, it's not too bad because capital has been given back to the LPs, been given back to the VC funds who are able to show some returns because that's eventually going to help the Indian startup ecosystem. Because if the LPs are still liquid, if, if, the, if, if the funds are able to liquidate and give money back to the LPs, there's more conviction that, hey, there is more value in this asset class. And it's only eventually going to progress the Indian VC ecosystem. And while the learning is happening in the background, the immediate returns are actually helpful in pushing that narrative. Absolutely. The learning Absolutely. is happening at the expense of the bigger guys. And the yeah. Indian ones are not really being completely yeah. hurt by it. Right? Yeah. 
No, no, I, I, I don't think anybody would disagree with that, Akash, in my view, right? So, and, and that's why in my, in my this thing also, I said that, you know, both that excess period and this period together makes for, for a solid outcome. Yeah. And I 100% yeah. agree with you. I think it was needed in the ecosystem. See, at the end of the day, the, the entrepreneurship uh, seen in the, it, it's just a crucible of experiments, right? So a lot more money went into it. And whenever there is excess of liquidity, it's the risk capital that increased disproportionately. And that's always good for any country, any ecosystem. It just becomes more inefficient, right? Yeah. But dollar to dollar comparison in absolute terms, it is just helpful for everybody involved over there, right? There is, and it just changes the background because of which the pain right now gets amplified, what we are seeing right now, because we are just coming across that background. But see, I think a lot of people forget and, and I'm fairly confident I remember this correctly. See, just before this COVID happened, in 2020, around then, uh, or late 2019, I think the world was anyways heading towards a slow recession, including for the first time in India, we had liquidity crisis, but in consumer spending was also slowing. Manufacturing was contrasting, uh, contracting. And I, and I think what happened was there was a spike that came in because of COVID and excess liquidity. And now we have resumed where we had left it off, right? So I don't think, you know, things have changed too much. 2021 was anomaly. Unfortunately, a lot of founders, you know, still think that things will go back to normal. It, it takes a lot of, you know, a lot of our time these days, you know, go in telling everyone that 2021 was a normally. Today is normal. It's still not bad. You know, the multiples, if you look at public markets. So this is, this is how life is supposed to be. And if we ever get a year like 2021 in our lives, you know, that will be, that will be a great outcome. But I don't think that's going to happen. That's true. And I, I, I'm glad you brought this up because we don't really look at, we, we did see the economy slowing down. We did see the GDP not actually like growing at the rate mm. at which um, yeah. economists actually predicted. And even if I'm not wrong, we're still growing at a 4, 4%, roughly just about 4%, yeah. right? As yeah. compared to where we were a, a few years ago. Uh, but yeah, you are right in terms of where the trends were heading and COVID kind of like just papered over those cracks for a short period of time. And and yeah. now back to back to where it was. And I did promise you that we'll talk about some of the successes. And in some sense, we've kind of like touched upon it in in bits and pieces. Uh, but towards the last part of the segment, we'd love to learn a little bit about your insights in working with some of our best portfolio companies. And you know, in your own words, you said you have had more learnings through the successes than some of the not so yeah. famous uh, outcomes. So let's talk about yeah. that. Let's delve a little bit more deeper there and try and understand what have your portfolio companies done really well? And yeah. how have you as investors also benefited of their success in terms of understanding how companies are built, sitting on not sidelines because you do take a, a, a hands-on approach, but also in some cases observing how some people have gone about doing their their, their yeah. things. Yeah. So we've been blessed and fortunate to to have worked with some you know great founding teams to be honest you know regardless of you know where their valuations sit right now you know truly fortunate to be working with them see there are examples of plenty right so if i talk about you know one of our earlier investments is a company called ship rocket which is a logistics aggregator as of today we would call that right yeah. so when we invested in them by the way they were trying to build the shopify for india went on to realize that in India, you know, that that it, it was slightly ahead of its time and they wanted to give demand to, you know, the long tail of SMEs, you know, small and medium merchants. And they were just launching a consumer product to give demand, right? We invested at that point, you know, excited by that thing and especially excited by the team. This was a series of transaction. 
But what we learned was, you know, we struggled to actually put our finger on a true value proposition for the business as well as a good economics for that model. And this is back in 2015, 2016. But on the other hand, our scale and GMV had zoomed, you know, 20x, you know, in less than a year. And what happened then was, you know, to, you know, we all constantly were involved in the business, you know, and this was one of the cases we were truly, you know, as an extended team of the founders, truly thinking through this problem. And we all decided, especially the founders, that maybe we should not do this business. There's a part of the business that is doing well, you know, as a, as a backend technology that we had built, you know, logistic operation that we had built for this business, which is seeing some traction. And we have some capital in the bank. And this probably, you know, is not going anywhere, both from a unit economics perspective, as well as, you know, differentiation perspective. They took a call actually to shut that business down. That I would say 99.9% of the founders would not be able to take that call given the scale of the business and the growth of the business, right? So that maturity that the founders showed to put money into something that was much more solid and credible, uh, but much, much smaller in scale at that given point of time, showed us, you know, the, the maturity of the founders and how they grow and, you know, how good founders create value and build things, right? And that was a great learning for us as well. It actually helped us, you know, in a big way in figuring out the kind of teams that we wanted to partner with, to be honest. Right? That, that company right now, you know, is 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 valued at, you know, over a billion dollars, is profitable, and, you know, it, it's a tremendous success story in the country. Um, similarly, we have other successes, you know. Um, in, in other companies, we have learned, you know, as I was saying, you know, one common theme across all of our successes, which has, you know, doubled, down two of our you know strong beliefs one is extremely high retention rates we have seen that again in ship rocket we are backers of licious licious is uh direct to consumer meat brand um and i don't know you you might know that india consumes you know fresh meat instead of frozen meat so it's a fairly complex supply chain problem which these guys have mastered but over there you know while it's not a subscription business if you look at the number it's nearly like a subscription business because that's how you know the market consumes uh, you know, this category. Uh, so over there, those guys have done phenomenally well in a short period of time. Uh, we speak about our other investments like Eruditers and Lending Card. This is true over there, you know. High retention lead to hockey curves. That's been true to all of our successes. The second thing is just, you know, the commitment to the core. Again, I believe, and, and over there, our philosophy is, you know, backing playbook businesses. Now, what do we mean by that? several times you come across pitches that you know we have this product but we can see scaling up to a 10 million or a 20 million kind of a revenue or a scale with this but then we will do this open that launch a new product etc etc now if you look at the successes in our business models you know we are you know slightly apprehensive of that so the best successes all of these that i mentioned right and i, I can keep on going you know uh, across the portfolio another logistic firm let's transport or another lending firm rupee it's that one product, you know, the core product and the market that we back, you know, way back, you know, years back, the companies are still delivering on that same promise year after year and growing exponentially. And we have seen that as a common thread that, you know, that this is what works, right? If your original thesis is right, if you hit the right market with the right product, the obvious answer is you should not be needing to do too much more around it. Obviously, you know, at some point, there is a right time to build future S-curves and revenue streams and so on. 
but the core product should scale to very very meaningful heights that's the only way to attain hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue and build a truly truly large outcome right so that's the second outcome and the third you know uh, i'll be very quick about it but the third i will put over here is see when i started investing you know i was of the school of thought and still very convinced about it with market is very very important right uh, market always wins you know whether whether a great founder or a decent one it's the market which will define the outcome my view has slightly you know i've updated that view a little bit again looking at successes and looking observing people both inside the portfolio and outside i think you can grow to a great outcome if the market is great and you execute well right um, but i think let let's say you reach whatever a billion dollar value or 100 million dollars of revenue if you need to create a really enduring lasting institute which generates you know billions of dollars in shareholder value you know year after year year after year i think that is where it all comes down to the founder right opening new markets expanding new markets you know launching new product just thinking about it differently that i think you know now i believe you know that truly comes down to the founding team mm. these are some of the learnings that you have observed you know through our portfolio now these three learnings actually like stand out um especially because when we team is probably something that most people will obviously uh, say but then the first two points i think were very very interesting for me personally to understand um because it kind of fits into your thesis that you've been sharing with me all along the course of this episode which is market always wins and mm-hmm. and and the people who kind of like understand and are able to like mold not just themselves business models um and 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 more importantly their mentality towards it are also probably positioning themselves better for i wouldn't necessarily say pivots but also being able to be just be more malleable in the process yeah of, of, yeah. of orienting business models to where it needs to um, as opposed to just being very strict and rigid in which cases we've seen companies that have unfortunately fallen by the wayside when when you kind of like try to do that uh, but another question that popped into my head was um, you know we've seen four cycles in my opinion right there was that flipkart era where we saw horizontalization of of commerce in some sense and we were able to like build um, you know just basic fundamentals of um, e-commerce and then came the era which is india 2.0 which is like the oyos of the world and you had um, you know paytms that were trying to like digitize traditional um, you know experiences and then came verticalization of uh, various industries including commerce with you know the likes of the purples and 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 your nikas of the world and stuff mm-hmm. and today we're in that post covid era and i would kind of like almost discount most companies within covid because we haven't really seen anything that's kind of like broken away and come out as a success or a win because it's just you know year and a half or so post how do you view india 4.0 if i were to take india as a thesis it's kind of evolved every 3 to 4 years right so let's yeah. take out 20 25 six kind of lens here and say how do you view the next 3 4 years and yeah. how do you see india evolving and what is exciting you every single day yeah i'll akash unfortunately give a very very disappointing answer to that because as a as a fund and an investor in our thesis you know we refrain from predicting the future to the extent that you know and again you know one of the questions that we get asked is which are the sectors that we are looking to invest or you know what is what is hot as of now see by definition we are you know sort of reactive to great uh, founders and business models and we believe that it's the founders who actually find the answer to these questions and then you know our job is to uh, is to recognize 
you know noise from substance and then back the right teams uh, but but see in general where i will i will give you the answer to this at a very high level i i think the depth of the products in the market is continuing to increase we see more and more businesses you know impacting manufacturing we see deep tech playing a deeper role now obviously you know that there's a entire buzz around ai but we believe that you know i think the 4.0 would be reimagining of industries which i think is happening right even some industries are even today not reimagined in the way they should be with web 1.0 or 2.0 right so i think they will continue to be touched by that thing or we may you know as we typically do deep frog you know here or there you know in some segments but i think you know with the wave of new technologies that are coming up there is a great sense of reimagining some of the things but we don't as i said you know get into it too much ourselves and i'll tell you a very healthy and good reason you know if if i were to add you know any interest to this particular conversation is you know there is a reason by the way why we are that and and that is very similar to uh why most founding teams are good in my view in the early period is just constraint so the thing is you know the when when we started investing in 2013 2013 to 2020 years you know we invested in that time period 300 million dollars on in the country right and we our pace was just making two to three investments a year right uh, we are right now into a fund to a 500 million dollar that pace has increased but i'll tell you you know how that shaped our thinking specifically to this question see when you are only making two transactions a year as a whole team and you are sector agnostic as well you are meeting teams in fintech consumer tech edtech health tech logistics you know enterprise tech everything is competing right and a lot of companies qualify your early filters in terms of you know great teams or large markets and so on and so forth and then you know our thinking got shaped on how do we actually compare one deal possible deal with the other and we became extremely bottoms up we actually have created in house tools uh you know data tools that we actually put some of the numbers through and we have become extremely extremely first principles in our entire thinking and because of that constraint that we have in our earlier earlier years of investing that mindset led to success and that mindset we have tried to continue that let's not try to you know guess where we want to deploy capital let's look at it from grounds up bottoms up continue to believe in you know what got a success right now we still compare multiple companies you know completely like like i can compare a deep tech company to a fintech and consumer tech in my mind and still come up with some reason whether right and wrong and we often get things wrong as well uh to why i like one over the other if i had to choose one right so that shaped our thinking a lot and that's why you know we refrain from guessing where the money could go I actually love this answer more than a traditional answer that somebody would have given, which is, yeah, I like the sector, energy here and stuff, you know, all of that stuff. I think this makes for a much more, it helps you think because you're not giving a traditional answer, but also at the same time, you're telling us a lot about how you've learned from your own thesis, your own investing and what insights you've had from looking at the, uh, the ecosystem also evolved. So I personally have enjoyed listening to this version of this answer than anything else. Now coming back to, the question that you know i posed to you just a couple of minutes ago which i personally love um and i'll repeat it again i would love to understand how have you evolved as a person as an individual as an investor like if you were to just look back at your own like you know 11 11 and a half years of investing did you did, did you expect the kind of journey that you've had yeah but the short answer is absolutely not uh so so there are you know uh multiple subparts to that question so let me let me peel that onion 
see first of all i think in hindsight you know i'm very grateful to be in this industry because i just feel that as much as i have learned you know being an investor both professionally and personally and grown into the role i think it suited me as well right so i have always been someone who really really likes to understand things and understand first principles to the extent that you know in in both my undergrad and postgrad people hated you know teaching me because i would be full of questions right so so you know i always stuck out as a sore thumb that this guy you know is just disturbing the entire group and is not interested in the answer but you know just random things around it right and over here you know here i come into a world where i can ask you know as many questions as i want read up about this and the smartest people in their fields you know are more than willing to answer them right so i just took on to this thing like anything right so it really really uh you know suited some of my attributes but i have learned a lot over here right so uh as an investor i think couple of things that got enhanced as i have been in the industry more see one is empathy right? you see the hardships that founders go through uh so empathy and humility comes in over there i think we don't even pretend uh, uh as much as we like to work and help founders we don't pretend you know that that you know we are building the companies you know we are we are trying to support as much as we can and trying to be good and fair partners along that journey trying to do our small bits the best that we can so those things have just gotten amplified a lot um i would say you know personally this first principle thinking this everyday questioning and first principle thinking has creeped into the personal side of things as well so i think that is the biggest impact that it has had on on my life you know i don't take take anything for granted uh as we say in vc world you know there is no bad idea only bad timing so that teaches you a lot right so you become a lot more open minded in general about a lot of things uh, i'm a father of two daughters you know i've become very very open minded to so many things in my life and just try to understand observe human behavior understand things come up with frameworks of why things are happening around me and that's just became a state of mind actually which is everywhere i love that answer and i don't know what's it about you know you guys at bottlesman you guys are extremely humble you guys are extremely um introspective and you mentioned something you know somewhere in the middle of the podcast where you said i come from like a humble background come from you know middle class family and those are the values that kind of like resonate with you as well as when you're like speaking to founders as well and i think there's a lot the underlying theme of humility i think comes across not just with you know some of the best investors that i have spoken to in a short period of my time you know hosting the podcast but also at the same time the kind of um, influence it has just on your thinking and uh, mm-hmm. the way that you also are able to connect to people so i enjoyed listening to that answer and uh, the last hour and 20 minutes or so have just been phenomenal doesn't feel like you know we have spoken for a 100 minutes here um but you know this has been fantastic rohit i really appreciate you spending a little extra time here with me on the show today and uh, i would love to obviously bring you on at a later point as well and as i said this is the only fund that is repeated second time on the podcast and maybe the third <laughs> time will be the first fund that will repeat itself third time on the podcast as well and i've just learned so much from you sitting across and bouncing some of these thoughts across um um from you from, from over the course of the last 100 minutes that i've I feel that every conversation and not every episode's a hit right like in my opinion I I walk away but one of the things that I've actually 
learned and been grateful for the most is that this is like a mini MBA for me, just sitting and like hearing yeah. people, you know, their experiences, their talk. And that hundred minutes, you kind of like, you can, if you're just a half decent listener, you just get, you walk away feeling so much more enriched. And this has been one of those episodes for me personally. Yeah. So thank you so much for being here and sharing all the things that you have learned and uh, challenged me to also think about certain things as you were, you know, answering some of those questions, you put me on the spot. So I was kind of like also thinking, so it's been a great riffraff of one another. And I, and, and I'd love to bring you on uh, sometime, you know, maybe in a, a year and a half or so where we can talk about, you know, what your learnings have been since. No, no, I would love to. And thanks for having me, Akash. It's been great, you know, chatting for the last hundred minutes. It's good to answer these questions. And by the way, I think you're doing a great job, you know, chronicling Indian VC story. It's a great service to the community. Enjoy listening to your podcast and hope to come here soon again. Well, that unfortunately brings us to the end of this episode. But boy, was that wonderful or what? Rohit was able to share some fantastic insights from his time investing via Bertelsmann India Investments. I really enjoyed the bits where he talked about the learnings that he's had from investing in successful companies as opposed to just the learnings that most people see when they've made investments in companies that haven't scaled well. The postmortem and the thesis that Bertelsmann has been building over the last decade has made for a fantastic case study for anybody who's trying to get a glimpse into what venture capital investments in India can look like and has looked like over the past decade and a half or so. Well, I'm sure there's something for each and every one of you to take away from this conversation. And, and I leave feeling completely enriched from this conversation with Rohit. Extremely grateful for your time here on the show, Rohit. And I'm looking forward to conversing with you very soon on the podcast again. If you're like me and you enjoyed this episode and all the other ones that we've brought you so far, please go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps others discover the show and most importantly, keeps you updated about all of our future episode releases. We've got another great guest lined up for you here on the show next week. So please make sure you tune back in again and listen to their great insights building companies. Until then, stay safe, everybody, and continue to keep hustling.